So we are on to the third hour of uh, AMA this time. And as you notice, all the others, oh, this is different than the first time because I think it's time to set up a lot of groundwork so that I can answer questions effectively. And what might seem weird or nebulous, there's at least some background now so you can understand why I say the things I do. And why I'm so dismissive of so many things now. It's because it's really easy to be. It, most most new suggestions or diets, I can listen to for five minutes and know immediately if it's complete garbage or if there might be something interesting there or if it is an effective strategy for a very specific situation. Now, everybody hates this and I hate to do it, but I'm going to ask something that I never ask on podcasts and I'm going to ask for your support and as you all know I, I disappeared for a while from the public sphere and it was important that I did that not because I wanted to get away from the vitriol and things like that although I, I do have a vast disdain for social media and the way bad information spreads and Bad information spreads faster if it comes along with a lot of vitriol. I, I had to disappear because there were a lot of unanswered questions. Questions that I couldn't answer and I actually had no clue what possibly the right answers could be. And it's taken several years and a lot of work and I hope listening to this, listening to these past few hours, helps to give you some sort of idea of the work that I had to put in to answer questions pe people legitimately asked of my work that I also needed to ask of my own work and to resolve those questions. And so the support I'm asking for is I'm not asking for handouts. I'm, I'm really asking that you share this stuff as broadly as possible to as many people as you can think of Everybody everywhere. I, I think this is important information to get out there. And if nothing else, it's going to start a lot of conversations. Because as you've probably noticed, a lot of what I'm saying would make a lot of other people look really bad. And it would immediately put an end to some of the nonsense that they are spewing. And for some other people, it would actually probably spark some really good conversations and debates that need to be had in this sphere. Because I'm not saying I'm 100% right, um, but I am saying my confidence level is pretty damn high that I'm 90% right. And of course, there's always unanswered questions, and there's always things I don't know, and then there's always regions of science that haven't been penetrated yet there's there's questions that we just don't have answers to so i would really love everybody's support that way like i said i'm i'm not i'm not asking for money or support or that kind of financial support i'm i'm really asking not only support for me to get this information out there but supporting the scientific effort that should be behind all health and exercise and performance related conversations and that's what I'm asking your support for. So do with that as you please. I'd really love if, if you'd share this stuff. And the, these multi-hour sessions are actually really helpful for me because after I finish one, I usually take some sort of break and I can think about everything I said and realize where I may not have been clear enough. And one of the things I know in the last hour I wasn't clear enough about was I... I went on and on about THC from marijuana and I mean really what are spectacular metabolic effects. I mean to replicate some of the metabolic processes that happen in the brain during exercise with a chemical and then you don't have to exercise and you can still get some of the benefit. Uh, to me that's pretty spectacular just like I talked about DNP it puts cells into a metabolic state that as far as I know, there's no other physiological way to reproduce. So I, I really harped on the THC maybe a little too much. And I talked about cannabin, uh, cannabinoids and cannabinoid oil. And it, it does have quote-unquote positive effects by raising AMPK levels, which can help clean up cellular processes. But 
everybody listening to this podcast, my guess is, is doing some sort of regimen that's helping them to either stop the disease state or to remain in a healthy state. And by that, that covers everything from ketogenic to my dietary strategies to even fasting, long-term fasting. Carnivore diet fits under that that umbrella. So those things, if you're doing those diets, then the diet itself is actually putting your cells more strongly in that state of autophagy and cellular repair and cellular cleanup. It does that more strongly than almost any drug you can take. And cannabinoid oil fits into that category. So if you are insistent upon being on a diet that makes you sick, which means regular ingestion of carbohydrates all day, every day, then yes, CBD oil would probably be a good choice for you. For Well, it, it, would, it could potentially be helpful. For everybody else, really the only reason you would take it is if you think your bank account is too fat and it needs to be trimmed down a little bit. It really is useless in those scenarios. Now, and I feel like I'm putting myself in a weird position because I'm saying do the recreational drug, it has benefits, and forget about the CBD oil because really it, its benefits are moot if you're already on one of these diet strategies I talked about. So I'm not advocating CBD oil. Mostly because what I'm advocating is health and a certain type of diet strategy, which would make CBD oil totally and utterly pointless. Um, uh, Again, that doesn't make marijuana totally pointless. Uh, You you might want to get baked on a somewhat regular basis, I guess, because it can have health benefits. If you exercise intensely, specifically intensely, then it probably it won't have any benefits and you really need to focus on using paracetams and maybe ginkgo biloba to alleviate the downside because that's all you would get from it in those scenarios so it's i i try to be careful when i talk so that people know when they should do what and i think in the the last in hour two of this session i wasn't that clear so i want to be clear and also i need to be clear about i said if you're on a ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting for that matter depending on how long your fasts are you're not going to gain muscle mass and this is this also has a caveat to it because you're not going to gain any new muscle mass so let's say you've been training for a few years and you're still continuing to grow And if you switch to a ketogenic diet, you will not grow anymore. You're not going to add new muscle tissue. Now, if you're in a situation like I happen to be in uh, because, you know, I was bedridden for months and then I couldn't exercise without risking death, you know, if you're in that situation, I've been that way for a year and I lost, you know, I really, it's kind of a testament to what happens when the body's healthy. My appetite disappeared and it's because... I, my body didn't need anything. It had everything it needed already, essentially. You know, I had a lot of extra muscle tissue. I had a lot of stored up protein in the splachnic bed. Uh, you know, I, I just, I didn't get hungry. So I didn't force myself either. So I lost almost 30 pounds of muscle. I mean, it's pretty spectacular. I, I had no idea that could, that could happen that, ra- that rapidly from being sedentary and not eating appropriately, uh, I'm not very concerned about it. And I'm in the stage now where I should be able to work out without dying after the workout. We'll see what happens. But in association with that, I've been picking up my food and I've been kind of forcing myself to get my, my nutrient levels back up to where they would be. So since I lost so much muscle everybody's heard of muscle memory and that's predicated on when you whenever you resistance train assuming you're eating carbohydrates one way your muscle gets bigger 
is that it differentiates new satellite cells and those incorporate into the muscle tissue. And they don't necessarily create new muscle fibers, but what they do do is add nuclei to existing muscle cells. And this is really important. The more nuclei there are, the more protein is needed to sustain the entire structure. And what that does is it moves your baseline muscle mass. So this is where if you were just eating enough food to completely sustain what your body sees as homeostasis, like it's kind of just average point. What it does is before training, let's say your average point, I'm just going to use random numbers. Let's say your average point was 150 pounds. You train and you get up to 220 pounds. Let's just crazy numbers. You have a lot of muscle mass. Well, you've added quite a few nuclear proteins, nuclear nuclei to your muscle tissue, and that raises the bottom level of protein that your body will naturally hold. Now, you can go under that if you don't eat enough. And you can continue to increase and add more nuclei in the process. But it's that is the muscle memory. So right now, I'm basically I'm I'm trying to get my food intake up. I'm up to about three pounds of meat a day, essentially, and an orange at night. And that's kind of how I've been moving my trajectory back back to where it needs to be food-wise. And I'm, ga- I'm already gaining muscle back. I haven't started working out or doing anything. And this is very, very carnivore-like a diet, you might say, or it's extremely low-carb. You know, I'm not having a bag of oranges. I'm having one small orange in the evening. And that's mostly because acidic levels in the stomach, I mean, eating all that meat, by the end of the evening, it, my my body's not process that first pass processing just needs a little more acidity. Uh, I don't, it calms my stomach, and actually, the acidity tastes really good to me. So in that, and I've been get, regaining muscle, and I have done literally nothing except for that. In that scenario, I'm not growing new muscle mass. the The muscle is just re store i mean you can think of it as a storage process it's just picking up protein storage again to match the level of nucleation in the muscle it's make it's going back up to the muscle memory so i just want to make that caveat clear so somebody who's gained a lot of muscle and then has lost it for some reason on a ketogenic or carnivore diet they can gain some muscle back in that process without really doing much else so that's another caveat but that still doesn't break the model at all. All the machinery has already been put in place. All the new growth and differentiation that had to happen already happened while they were ingesting carbohydrates. So it doesn't break the model or anything like that. So that's another possibility if somebody said they gained muscle while on a ketogenic diet, that could, could be the reason as well. So I guess there's four reasons that or four possibilities if somebody says they've gained muscle while on a ketogenic diet. Four physiologically viable possibilities, we will say. And and that became that was really important for modeling the software because that changes a lot of parameters, both health and performance parameters. So that's that was another caveat that I needed to mention from the last last podcast. And I also, I've touched on cancer a couple times in these uh, through mitochondria information. And I said, we will probably likely never cure cancer. And I also talked about how I was trying to come up with a mathematical model for energy fluxes, more specifically entropy fluxes through mitochondria mats. And I talked about if you could optimize that, you could find what could be an optimal ratio of well, an optimal number of mitochondria per cell in general for different tissues in the body. And I've talked about this before with friends and they just think I'm, you know, they think this is some weird thing that I'm doing because I just need a tough problem. And it's not. This is, and I only have a little bit of time to to work on this. Actually, even that is intermittent right now. But it's an incredibly 
important research topic. I mean, this should be a fundamental research topic right now because so if I come up with those equations and I can optimize them, I can get that answer of mitochondria. And that's, I consider that a minor answer because what's going on, whatever you probably think you know about cancer is not correct. Like the idea of, oh, you have cells in the body going cancerous all the time and the immune system wipes them out. And A, we have no evidence of that, that that happens. And actually the evidence with the immune system shows that once cells go cancerous, the immune system actually works to protect them. So we have a, a lot of things are wrong with this idea, uh, how we conceptualize cancer. And the idea is, uh, oh, it's mutations in nuclear DNA in you know, the main genome, and those mutations through whatever reason or what cause cancer, we actually don't have much evidence for that as either. It turns out 90% of cancers don't fall under that. 90% of human cancers that we see from natural, we'll call them natural causes, like meta, I would call these metabolic cancers. We have essentially in the modern world, 90% of cancers are metabolic cancers. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. And even our idea of, is this substance carcinogenic? The way we test those is a model that's not reproducible in humans either. We basically flood an animal system with a chemical to the point that it's so oversaturated that the cells start to become dysfunctional. And some of those chemicals at that point can cause genetic mutations that then we pick up and and that's not always what's happening in the human body. So childhood cancers are different. And I'm going to leave those out of this conversation. And that's why I'm talking about metabolic cancers, which happen later in life. So th- this, this all goes back to that. Because what essentially happens when cells go cancerous is as you make the cell more and more sick, as I talked about, the mitochondria become less able to function and they start to fuse and they form larger mitochondria that are more efficient. And this isn't good. It leaves the cell in a vulnerable state for energy production. As this is happening, several genes that are actually related to growth and anaerobic respiration start to upregulate. The interesting thing is the upregulation of these genes always precedes the upregulation of what we call the oncogenes. And even oncogenes are a bit of a misnomer because some of those are related to growth and growth of cells and growth and repair. So even that's a little bit of a misnomer. But this is the process we see in large cancer distributions. We see the cells, they start to become, the mitochondria get sick, they fuse, they become incredibly efficient which leaves the cell in an energy deficit, which it then makes up for through anaerobic processes. And in that process, it starts to activate quote unquote oncogenes. And then the cell suddenly becomes cancerous. Now at that point, it starts sending out a bunch of inflammatory cytokines and other things that actually then put stress on the surrounding cells, which might turn them cancerous. So we're painting a bit of a picture here. If you're eating a diet that's continuously making you sick, you're, con- you're pushing all of your cells towards this cancer state. And some people, because of variations in mitochondrial DNA and the efficiency of that DNA, they can be resistant to cancer much longer. So we're, we're going to have a spectrum of when you might get different cancers. But that's what's causing cancer. Most cancer, 90% of cancers start with mutations and degradation of mitochondrial DNA. And mitochondrial DNA suffers massive amounts of damage no matter what you do because that DNA is located in the mitochondria at the point where energy is produced. So you have a lot of oxidization processes that can destroy that DNA. And that destruction gets passed on every time those mitochondria try to split 
if say you're trying to get healthy. So even if you're at a certain disease state, which is related to mitochondria, even if you start trying to get healthy and you get more mitochondria per cell through exercise or whatever, those new mitochondria are in the same disease state. You didn't make them better. And that's why, you know, ingesting carbohydrates, exercising, particularly especially resistance training, mobilizes new cells with brand new mitochondrial DNA that's not damaged from energy production yet. So all of this is really important. And it makes us have to have a little different view of cancer. What's giving us cancer is carbohydrates. And there's a direct relationship to amount of carbohydrates in the diet. Well, actually, it's more complex than that. It's carbohydrates can do it by themselves, but it's a slightly slower process. Carbohydrates mixed with eating fat on a regular basis, so a, a mixed diet, actually can accelerate the process. And surprisingly, fructose plus glucose, so these high fructose corn syrups, can also accelerate the process. Fructose itself cannot participate in the process, but it can speed up the process. And that's a topic for another time. But this is how we're actually driving the cells to a state of cancer with the dietary recommendations of basically every every modern country, whether it's the United States, whether it's the World Health Organization, and as I've traveled around Europe, there are their dietary guidelines are pretty much on track with either the United States or the World Health, World Health Organization, which are very similar. So this is what's driving cancer. Now, the equations I was talking about with mitochondria, in modeling the cell that way, it has this important consequence because what happens is as the cell's becoming sick, if you remember earlier I talked about for things to be long-lived, they try to exist in this maximum power state. So this is about 50% efficiency. Now, as you now as you look at what happens with as mitochondria fuse, the efficiency starts to go down and the power out output goes down with it. So you start losing power, the efficiency goes down. And then if it is on the right trajectory, it goes through this it goes through a phase change in the cell and this is just like any of you who can remember high school chemistry the phase change between say ice and water in general if you can heat up the ice all uniformly all of a sudden it turned the whole thing turns into water all at once it works the same way in reverse there's other phase changes in physics and there's phase changes in biological systems and if this this rate into the lower efficiency lower power output if it's slow enough then the cell can go through a phase transition and just ignore the oxidative side and switch completely over to anaerobic or mostly over to anaerobic respiration and in doing that it actually jumps back almost to 50% efficiency again. And everybody, you might be thinking, well, anaerobic respiration is really inefficient. You don't get as many ATP. This, this is true from an energy standpoint, but what's and this is why entropy is so important. It actually decreases the entropy of the cell because now if you're purely, and, and they've actually just modeled this. Uh, some physics and bio physicists and biologists got together and just modeled this. If you go completely anaerobic, then the cell turns off all of the maintenance equipment and all of the transcription equipment to produce the enzymes necessary for the oxidative state. So even though you're not getting as much energy per molecule, you've actually decreased entropy overall because you're no longer having to support all that other machinery. So it's this crazy phase shift in the cell. And I know all of this maybe sounds kind of crazy, but it's important to understand and important to discover and elucidate because it tells us a lot of things about how you can get cancer. And unfortunately it tells us it's gonna be incredibly hard to cure cancer 
um, because a lot of these processes are because the cell is so sick. And that's why chemotherapy might kill those cells because it then pushes, they're, they're far more sensitive to environmental changes at that rate. So if you change their environment, you make their environment incredibly to- toxic, then they just can't function anymore. So chemotherapies can work. Gene therapies are very difficult to make work because, like I said, most of the time the, the nuclear DNA is not damaged. There's, there's nothing to target there, and unfortunately targeting the right genes can have consequences in other healthy cells. And so it's important if, if we can s- understand this process and understand where that phase transition happens and understand the path that leads to that phase transition, then we can stop it. And another path that is viable for those cells is they, they become, their efficiency ramps up so fast or needs to be called upon so quickly so it has to produce more power and it can't yet that the cell then goes into apoptosis and just dies and that's what should happen if we know that then we could actually use something like dnp in a very targeted way when we know somebody is potentially in that that level of disease state where they might have some some large phase shifts we could actually give dmp to them which would put such a strain internally on the sick cells they would instead of being able to go to the trajectory of cancer they have to go through the trajectory of apoptosis so we we could stop cancer before it even ever started ever it's 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 essentially a way to clean out the really damaged cells on a somewhat regular basis now, this also has a caveat because cancer isn't just like one cell that goes crazy and starts multiplying so fast that it takes over all the other cells. Actually, what happens is for you to get deadly cancer, a large number of cells in whatever tissue it is have to all be severely damaged and deep in the disease state. So once one flips over and has its phase transition to cancer, Like I said before, it starts releasing all kinds of chemicals that then slightly stress the surrounding cells. And guess what? It knocks them over into cancer. And then this becomes a large cascading effect. And all of this pans out in that cascading effect. If you look at cellular shape based on mitochondria colony, as the mitochondria fuse it actually changes the shape of of the cell a little bit. They actually shrink. Now, a lot of times when cells are about to go through apoptosis, they actually expand, which is a good thing. But when they shrink and remain functional, this was also recently mathematically modeled in in real tissue. They found there's this critical point where the cells, just as they tip over and get just small enough and are still functional, which cancer cells do, all of a sudden, they go from being locked in place in the tissue to all of a sudden be free-flowing. They can move around in the tissue in a way that they never could before. And this is the state of metastatic cancer. So these cancer cells now have collapsed to the point that they can move around in the tissue, they can leave the tissue, and they can enter other parts of the body. The only way they can seed cancer in other parts of the body is if that tissue is also very sick. And then it can start a cascade there. So knowing this, it makes treatments for cancer really suspect because the body all of the body is already really sick and that's why people who have metastatic cancer rarely survive unfortunately it's because their tissue their systemically their cells are all in a very sick state and it's very easy to turn them over into a cancerous state um so we need to rewind and we need to say okay This is a really harrowing battle that we will probably never win, curing cancer. But why worry about it when we can just eliminate all cancer? We can just prevent cancers from occurring. And you can do that through diet, obviously, exercise. And all of this should make sense if you've been listening to these podcasts, why these would work. And if necessary, you could do it with something of phospholytic decoupler like DNP. DNP. 
which stresses the cells so rapidly they cannot make the phase transition to cancer. So this is a brief, believe me, very brief overview of cancer. And so far, all of the research we have fits with this model. Other models fail for various reasons. This model, all the data I've been able to piece together, all fits in this model. And maybe there's evidence I don't I don't know about or some phenomenon that I'm unaware of. But as far as I could dig up and every question I could ask of this model, it's all answered in the affirmative. And that explains why, except for metformin, other anti-diabetic drugs that force more glucose into cells that were trying to not burn glucose anymore, like muscle and fat, pushing that through then tips those cells over into cancer, which they which would normally never happen. That's why we see a rise in soft tissue cancers. And again, it, this, I mean, this model is, so as essentially, <laughs> I'm just kind of laughing to myself because I'm always amazed at all the things that this model covers. It covers another big question we have with radiation. We tend to, we're, we're pretty scared of radiation. Part of that fear came from the x-ray machine when it was first discovered and people were having x-ray parties at their home and then people started getting cancer. So we're, we're scared of radiation. And it turns out when you look at in animals and people, when you look at radiation exposure it's not even an accumulation of radiator radiation exposure if you look at radiation exposure versus risk of cancer the curve is incredibly flat you can be exposed to a lot of radiation and then all of a sudden at a certain level of radiation it jumps it's almost like a phase transition the, the body can actually handle a lot of normal radiation and you have to get you have to have a large exposure of a particular type of radiation for your risk to go up. And unfortunately, at that point, your risk got skyrockets. So it's almost like a switch. And this has been hard, hard to explain for a lot in the old cancer model. And for a lot of people, it's completely ignored. I think um, it's David Katz, maybe Dr. Katz. He's the electromagnetic radiation is causing all of our cancer guy. And he, he, this completely destroys his argument because that level of radiation's never been shown to to create cancer, and you wouldn't expect it to in this model. The, there's nothing that that radiation does to significantly push cells over into this cancer state. And, and if you want simple proof of that, you know his claims are that it's working at a nuclear level and an atomic level, and he has all this crazy stuff. If you just want proof that it makes no difference in cancer risk, then, and this is a question I ask, well, if there's a huge cancer risk, then birds who sit on and nest on high power, high tension power lines should be riddled with cancer. They should, because the electromagnetic field on the, if you're sitting on the wire is massively intense. It is orders and orders and orders of magnitude more powerful than anything you will ever experience in your life. And the birds are sitting on the wires for large parts of the day and they're nesting around the wires in some places, in some instances. We should see a massive increase in, in bird cancer in these populations. And believe it or not, if you look it up, they've actually studied this. And there is no increase in, in bird cancers for these populations of birds. And they study these populations specifically because of the EM radiation. And what they do find is it affects shell formation in newborns. Uh, it, it, it can mess with the calcium that is distributed to form the shell. And that's because cal calcium is a charged ion and the fields there are strong enough to change how the calcium can form and changes its ability to form symmetrically for the egg. But so far, those are the only, that is the only effect they've found on these birds and they've looked for everything. So if, if I were Dr. Katz, I would never want that information out there because it would make me look like an idiot. 
And that, that's why he doesn't discuss it and never would and would never point to that research. And probably, to be honest, is probably never asked the question because it's a good question. It's like, okay, if that's the case, then is there any animal that is it's subjecting itself to massive amounts of electromagnetic radiation? Yes, birds. Okay, well, let's look in that bird population. So you have to have the thought process of either wanting to prove yourself right or prove yourself wrong to even think to go look in those directions. If cancer, if electromagnetic radiation is that fundamentally cancerous, it would affect all animals in some way into a cancer state. And it, it just, it doesn't happen. So it helps us to reevaluate conversations like that, which turn out to be completely naive and wrong. Um, it helps us to look, to analyze other conversations too. Like when we talk about, okay, in animal studies, how do they produce cancer? Well, like I said, one way they do that is they feed massive amounts of these chemicals to the animals and then they see how many die and then they look at at uh, potential cancer formation. Well, if you saturate any biological system with that much foreign substance, it starts to disrupt the energy supply in the cells. As it does that, it, f it can make the cells migrate towards that transition point and become cancerous. So it wasn't necessarily the chemical that caused the cancer. It was the procedure. And this has been noted by Dr. Bruce Ames. This has been noted for decades. He has repeatedly brought this up and said it's likely not the chemicals it is our procedure for how we're testing for cancer and with a full full model of how cancer works that then begins to fit with that picture yes it, pr it probably is our procedure and he has a good point if you go through and you analyze every chemical that's been tested for carcinogenic for carcinogenic properties or mutagenic properties all of those it's literally a coin toss so you can give me any chemical and the coin toss is natural or human made and you say okay i'm going to take this chemical and i'm going to test it to see if it produces cancer i can flip a coin and have the same accuracy well let's say you you decide on 10 chemicals you're going to test 10 chemicals both natural and artificial like say five and five I can flip a coin for each one of those and my average will be the exact same average you get from your study. It's literally random. And in some, in some instances, substances studied multiple times, which they often do with naturally occurring, naturally occurring chemicals because they don't want those, they don't want people to think that the chemicals produced in tomatoes by tomatoes are going to give them cancer. And there are like 50 cancer-causing agents in a tomato, not the pesticides or anything else, but that the tomato makes. And when you test those, coin toss, half of them, you know, they, they cause cancer. But if you test them again, then they don't cause cancer. So really it's our procedures that are also involved. Now, there are a few substances where we know the mechanism of how it's causing cancer and it's usually actually a type of metabolic stress whether it's oxygen deprivation or energy deprivation in some way so we understand those and and that's good and those don't follow our other model now if you need more evidence that this is how cancer works of as people get more sick they have a few cells that start to turn over but other surrounding cells are also sick then our, our new cancer detecting imaging technology supports this because now we can look in very, very, very fine, fine detail in tissue samples. And recently they've started to analyze, and a few researchers have done this, I believe it was in Finland, thyroid cancer has been skyrocketing. And they kind of questioned, okay, did thyroid cancer diagnosis is did the cancer skyrocket or did the diagnosis skyrocket for another reason so they took a hundred cadavers so these people had all died for different reasons and they analyzed their thyroid gland and what they found 
was that every single one of those people to the best of our diagnostic equipment would have been labeled as having thyroid cancer, even though it didn't affect their life at all. They never had any symptoms. It never affected organ organ performance. And the reason was there, there were few abnormal cells and there were few abnormal patches of cells. And this is the start of the process of that turnover, of that phase shift. And then if enough of those cells had become sick all at once, then the whole, then larger numbers of cells would then become sick and it would become a runaway process. And that's why the most dangerous cancers, even if you get a checkup every six months, you could be in a situation where one of those six months you've, you're, it's discovered that you have cancer that is already really advanced because it's a runaway process. So once that tip over happens, you can get a runaway process of the cancer's not growing. It is, it's also growing, but more importantly, it's caused a cascade effect of several of the cells becoming cancerous around it, and they in turn cause the cells around them to become cancerous, and it becomes an exponential growth. So that's why these dangerous tumors are so dangerous because the tissue in your body is already so sick. And this is really scary. If you're getting that type of cancer, that means your body is so sick that every cell in your body is now highly susceptible to being pushed over into that cancer state. This is this is earth-shatteringly important for us to understand. So when we put all this together and we have this new view of cancer, hopefully I'm not scaring anybody, but again, if you're if you're on this, if you're in this community and you're listening to this, hopefully you're doing a diet that is preventing the cancer from forming. And that's what ketogenic diet will do. It Car- Carnivore diet has the capability. My diet programs are not only to prevent cancer, but can also heal some of that damage. And so if, if you're in that regime, you really don't have much to worry about. In all of this, so explaining how cancer works, a lot of this is geared towards the fear-mongering that goes into environmental toxins, and there's all these carcinogens in the air, and there's carcinogens here, and that like all of this really doesn't pan out. Most of these things are of little to no risk for, for the average person. And really this environmental toxin idea started back in the 60s with Rachel Carson, if you know who she is, in her book Silent Spring. She basically, she, she was more environmentally minded and to try to get make, make people pay more attention to the environment, it appears that she decided sensationalism was the best way to do it and her book is filled with if you want to be nice you can say scientific inaccuracies if you want to be honest then you would probably want to say lies because she completely lied about all of the risks of pesticides and all these things in humans and she made it sound like we were all going to die all cancers were related to these things and we had proof and so on and so forth and on and on and it's just not true. And of course, the the media picked up on this because sensational stories, they spread. And that's what networks needed at the time. And so she became a celebrity and was also consulted for environmental policy. And I, I'm not, and nowhere in this conversation am I leaning towards pesticides, no pesticides, whatever. That's not the point of this topic. The point of this topic is at the time, the data did not exist and she just lied. And that lie has now pretty much been amplified through society for decades. And we're still terrified of environmental toxins when really we don't have much of a reason to be. Now, environmental toxins could play a role when you're already really sick at the cellular level. You did this. This happened through diet. This didn't happen through environmental toxins. And then that extra stress 
could push cells over into a cancer state. And even that appears to be rare. Now, obviously, this conversation does, this is for average people in, say, even a, a, a big, dirty city, let's say. Because if, like Dow Chemical used to do, they used to dump Teflon into the water supply of small towns and those people developed cancers, that's different. That, that was almost the type of incursion that we do with mice. It wasn't necessarily that the chemical was so toxic. It's that the system had been flooded with it to a point and it accumulates, which is a big problem with Teflon. Once it's in your system, it stays in there. So as it accumulates, it can start to disrupt metabolism and wreak all kinds of havoc. In those chemicals, we understand the process of how they cause cancer in high doses. Now, in your frying pan, I'm always... I'll, I'll cook on basically Teflon and their new equivalents. I'll cook on a Teflon frying pan. It doesn't bother me unless it gets scratched or unless I don't know that pan's history. And what I mean by that is if you have a Teflon pan, never once should you use a metal utensil in it because once you break that outer surface, even if it's not visible that the scratch goes all the way to the metal, once you break that outer surface with a hard with a scraping away of that material, you've now decreased the integrity of the material, period. And it may be coming off in your food. So in those scenarios, we do know Teflon is itself carcinogenic, especially in high dosages, and we know that it builds up, which is a really big problem. Your body absorbs it, and it does not get rid of it. That's the big problem. So... That's how I work with the real world and don't worry about it. As long as I, I've purchased the pan, I know how the pan's been used. I use plastic utensils all the time. And I always make sure if there's ever a spot in the pan where the water no longer hits it and just rolls right off, then there's probably some problem with the surface integrity and I go buy a new pan. Pretty simple. I have no worries whatsoever. And most of the toxins that you're led to be scared of fall into this category. It never hurts to be cautious and not do things that are unnecessary. But at the same time, it doesn't make any sense to live your life in fear that all of these toxins, which are actually in minute amount compared to the toxins we get in vegetation, half of which we know are carcinogenic and they we get those carcinogens from the food from the plants at levels that are 10,000 times as high as environmental toxins and i think it would be asinine to say that vegetables cause cancer i don't think they do i i mean there's always the potential that if you're sick enough that toxic load could po- cause problems which is maybe why vegans get the same cancers as all of us, as everybody else, mixed diets or not, and they have half the survival rate. I mean, that, that could contribute to that reason. There's, there's other theoretical reasons that you would expect vegans to have several physiological problems. And that susceptibility of the poor health of their cells is a major contributing factor to why they get a lot of the same diseases as everybody else and actually have lower survival rates and are more susceptible to a few other diseases actually so this is a huge huge conversation on cancer because i wanted to explain a couple, a few questions were, should we be worried about all these environmental toxins, about Teflon? I take them all pretty much in stride. I'm not concerned about them whatsoever. And I've set up my life to make sure I don't overexpose myself for no reason. But at the same time, it's not something I'm worried about on a day-to-day basis. And I, you know, I have good well, evidence and a theoretical framework to say why I shouldn't be worried about it. As long as I'm eating a healthy diet, I'll, I'll never get sick enough. My cells will never be sick enough for those minor incursions 
to cause any kind of problem. And and back to Rachel Carson and her in, insecticides cause cancer and all this stuff. We have, those are hard studies to do in people. Obviously, any any carcinogenic study is really hard to do in people. And but she she could have asked simple questions and and tried to find some research on that. Like for example, the people farmers who handle the pesticides would have been a good population to look at. They have it turns out when you test their system their tissue their blood they have pesticides in their system anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 times the levels of people who don't work with the pesticides this is a mat this would be massive poisoning if pesticides cause cancer like massive poisoning and it turns out that population actually had lower rates of all cancers except in the men there was a slightly higher risk of prostate cancer. And that they actually knew which chemical it was. They understood the process by which it caused cancer. And that's been eliminated from pesticides ever since. But in that population, you're talking about levels 10 to 100,000 times higher, somewhere in there, than everybody else. And they have lower rates of all cancers. So you shouldn't, you should immediately not think that pesticides lower cancer risk. They do not. There was probably some confounder in that that their lifestyle helped them or their lifestyle or their diet activity or whatever put them in a situation where they were less likely to get cancer. But these supposedly super toxic, super cancerous pesticides didn't did nothing, even at amazingly high dosages. So the the point here being stop being worried about all this minutia uh, like i said you'll find that i'm very dismissive of a lot of things and i have very very good reason to be dismissive and it would take significant evidence to show that we should be scared of certain things and smoking is one of those weird examples of that i mean you could there's enough data to say that you could be relatively healthy and the smoking could push you in a direction of ill health for toxicity reasons. And this also fits with kind of this more advanced understanding of cancer and how it forms because some people smoke their whole lives and never get cancer. And then when their diets are analyzed, it seems like their diets are garbage. They're not eating their vegetables like they're supposed to. They're eating a lot of fatty meat. They're drinking alcohol. And it's like, well, they should have died for all kinds of other reasons. Well, when you analyze their diet, their carbohydrate load turns out to have decreased the older they got for whatever reason, laziness or their tastes. And so it could be the case and these studies would have to be done, but it could be the case that their cellular damage never got bad enough for the the toxicity in cigarette smoking to f flip them over to the cancer state. So all I'm not recommending that you smoke if you're on a ketogenic diet. Absolutely not. The risk is still too high that even on a ketogenic diet, the incursion from cigarette smoking very much could put enough stress on you and on the cellular mechanisms especially in the lungs to cause this metabolic cancer so i'm not saying believe me i'm not saying oh well if you're on a ketogenic diet it's safe to smoke it is not what i am saying is that this this theory of cancer and this disease theory actually helps us to explain data that before seemed completely inexplicable it, it is actually completely understandable within this framework and we're almost at the hour mark and i think i can squeeze in some stuff here about uh, vegetable there were some questions on vegetables if they're hormetic or if they're dangerous or if they're unnecessary and i mean honestly they could be hormetic especially in children and one reason I say that is like all oh, kids, so many kids, so many people have all these allergies and everything. And then if you're an adult and you were convinced that you had a food allergy, which is probably fake, then you start taking foods out of your, the diet of your children. And I've actually run into this quite a few times here with people I know and, 
have spent time with who've just had children and they start freaking out because a a doctor told them that their kid was probably had gluten intolerance and they probably had nut allergies and so they're freaking out and taking those foods out of the diet of a child actually will make them have allergies later i mean these those incursions to all these different chemicals that have low grade tech toxicity so they they could be hormetic the exposure to all of these chemi- chemicals actually ramps up their immune system and makes them more robust to these potential toxins so there was there was in the 80s there was this alert to peanut allergies and like oh kids are dying all over the all over the world from peanut allergies which was the statistics were actually highly blown out of proportion but once that report was made over the next 10 and 20 years all of a sudden there was a significant rise in peanut allergies and then the question was okay what what happened was it the peanut crops was it pesticides being used in the peanut crops was it some other environmental agent well what they found is that the kids who ended up having peanut allergies especially in their teens were kids whose parents had been so scared they made sure the kids never touched peanuts their entire childhood so the scare in the 80s actually made peanut allergies a real problem and they they've done further research on this and and yes that turns out to be the case so if you're keeping all of these foods any of these foods away from your kids you are setting them up to be very sick later in life where they they will have to pretty much live in a glass house because all of the normal things that you and I can be exposed to and can handle without any problem will really will make them sick and they've done more of these studies and this goes with how clean your house is how much you disinfect if you take children from some large city and you compare the more affluent population to the lower socioeconomic population you find some huge differences in their environment Um, the more affluent families tend to have like super clean overly clean disinfecting their children doesn't their children don't get very dirty very often out like outside dirt things like that and then the lower socioeconomic classes often often are concentrated in denser communities it turns out their water quality is not as good their air quality is not as good they are exposed to high levels of mold in their households obviously none of this is good but what they found is that the children with the better immune system were the kids exposed to all of the germs and the molds and the toxins and those kids also had no signs of any allergies later in life and they also got sick far less often than the affluent children so here you have a situation where all of the environmental toxins that we're exposed to we should be making sure kids are highly well not highly but exposed to them so that as they get older they can handle whatever environment they're in and at the moment for middle class and higher and all these germ scares and everything it's the opposite direction and these scares have also caused real threats a lot of antibiotic resistant infections are from the use of some of these disinfectants both topical and internal and the bacteria can the bacteria that survives is the evolutionary winner if you want any example of evolution more poignant and scarier than the back than bacteria's recent evolution to resist all of our best antibiotics like i i don't know what other what other current argument you would need that things do evolve even if that seems like a minor bit of evolution it is a massive evolutionary leap considering those chemicals wiped out everything and now those we've those bacteria and infections have evolved to the point that they can wipe out people again so you know it's like important important stuff so for kids people wanted more information on kid nutrition i'll 
I'll answer those questions a little bit later. We're approaching the end of the hour, but the one suggestion I can make for kids is let them get dirty. Let them be exposed to mold. Obviously, don't feed them moldy bread. Let them eat all kinds of different foods, like everything. If they have a peanut allergy, trust me, you will absolutely know for sure because when they touch a peanut, they might go into anaphylactic shock. Like give those foods and they actually found that kids that are presented with some sort of peanut or really creamy peanut butter as babies, like peanut allergy does not exist. Like it doesn't exist in those kids. So my suggestion is ditch all of the paleo food allergy stuff, whatever is left over from that because it is all bullshit to begin with and really focus on making sure your kids are as exposed to as many normal environmental toxins as possible and that includes in just eating regular foods vegetables all of that stuff let them play outside in the dirt let them get dirty all of those things i'm i I could make an even even worse recommendation but i won't but you know let them be dirty let them don't clean off the counter if they eat something off the floor let them eat something off the floor this isn't bad for them it might seem gross I wouldn't eat something. Well, no, I might eat something off the floor depending on what it was and what floor I dropped it on. But in general, it it's not it's not going to hurt them. It's only going to help them in the long run. And that should be everybody's focus is making sure not that their kids are like perfectly safe in this protective bubble right now in this instance, but making sure their kids acquire all of the tools necessary to thrive out in the world when they're older. That's the parent's main and most important job. And I think a lot of parents have forgotten that. And more of the some of the more bored parents like never give it up. They always try to create a productive bubble for their children as they get older. Now I'm not a parent, so I am definitely not speaking from a place of authority. I did study psychology, especially child psychology, when I was in college, but I, I left before I got that bachelor's degree because I just couldn't see any reason to stay there for another quarter just for that degree. I already had two. That was enough. Um, so, But I, I'm no expert, but I do have at least some knowledge in child psychology to say like, you, you really need to step back and let your children make mistakes. And the most important thing you can do is not to shield them from mistakes. It's to help them understand that the only way we learn things and all of the miraculous advancements in human history have come about from mistakes. If you think about it, 99.999% of all scientific discoveries are the mistakes But you have to go through all of those mistakes before you can hit on the linchpin that brings it all together and advances the world forward or advances your career or whatever. And I I just I feel like that's a lesson that's been been lost in Western society. Anyway, that's definitely on the tangent side. But as far as food goes, you should let your kids eat. You should expose them to a variety of things, even if they're things you're not eating yourself. It helps to, to let them be exposed to those. Now, we'll, we'll talk about maybe the diet makeup of children later on in a, a subsequent hour. But that's kind of a, a basic basic information. So this obviously, this, this one was packed full of information. Really, I hope everybody shares this. But more importantly, I hope under everybody understands that our emerging view of what cancer really is and how cancer really functions and how cancer actually comes about is incredibly important to understand. Incredibly important. And I hope that even though this was only touched on the surface, you know, I went through the items very quickly. I hope it was enough to help you see this emerging picture and how important it is to eat correctly indefinitely like or and exercise and like all these all these things will prevent cells from ever being sick enough to be flipped over into the cancer state and also 
like let go of all the stress in your life over toxins in the environment and that includes organic foods versus non-organic foods there's really no difference in their risk there's no difference in nutrition they've showed that multiple times there is a difference in environmental impact with organics actually having a greater environmental impact and there's all kinds of reasons for that which maybe one day i'll go into i've touched on it several times you know so don't stress about those things and definitely don't go to Whole Foods to pay $10 for an orange that says it was organic. I mean, it makes no sense to do those things. The only people you're helping are corporate interests who have warped the organic labeling so that they can dump what used to be toxic waste called fly ash from coal power plants onto organic fields as mineral fertilizer. So that's when you buy organic in the United States, that's essentially what you're supporting is the transition of what was, used to be toxic waste becoming labeled as organic fertilizer because they have to have massive quantities of these things to sustain the organic craze that's currently going on. Um, obviously, I could rant about that for hours as well. Uh, but not on, not in this, like, however many hours this is going to run to. All right, I'm going to cut this one off there, and I'll talk to you again in the next segment.